Welcome to the show. In this one, I talk with three prominent black voices in the Alaska community to understand the conversations and the perspectives of Alaskans in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. Floyd's death has sparked worldwide protests and rallies against police brutality and systemic racism in the United States. Alaska has seen a number of these rallies, including in Anchorage, Fairbanks, Palmer, Utkiavik, Unalakleet, Sitka, and Kotzebue. Here's a clip from the rally in Palmer on Saturday, June 6th. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, and Aquila Space. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and support make these conversations possible. In the following conversations, I talk with rapper and community activist Michael Coffey, journalist Zakia McCummings, and high school teacher Mike Thompson. Each conversation comes with its own unique perspective, but there is a common theme prevalent in every one of them. It is of deep-rooted generational trauma and how it affects everyday life. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. In this first conversation, I talk with Michael Coffey, better known as Starbucks, a local rapper and community activist in Fairbanks. What was your reaction to learning about the killing of George Floyd? Man, to be completely honest with you, uh, man, disappointment, frustration, anger, um, sadness, just a, a bunch of emotions balled up into one. You know, I've been, <clears throat> I pay attention to a lot of this stuff and I'm socially conscious and aware. And um, I'm also aware of the social disparities, disparities in this country. And so to see that, I think what paid me work the most was um, not only the man, the, the man losing his life, but the other people that are were around. And I feel like they had been tamed to where they wouldn't intervene. You know, like their instincts to fight back have been waned and been worn on so far. They've been beaten and, you know, and oppressed for so long that they literally stood there and watched a man die, you know? And I feel like that a lot of that has to do with um, systemic racism and oppression of a, of, a, of a particular people in a race. Like that hurt me to like, to see them seeing another black man or another, just another human being in general. We don't even gotta put the color of the skin into anything, but having to stand there and not fight back and help and know what they're doing is wrong. And literally it was almost as if they had a, an electric fence and they couldn't, you know, they couldn't breach the barrier. So that was disappointing. That was disheartening. It was hurtful. 
um, I can only imagine how they feel, you know, witnessing that. And I can only imagine how that man, I can't even imagine how that man's family feels. And how about your kids? Do you know how, how they felt about it? Yeah, man. Um, definitely. <clears throat> See, my opinion and my belief in this particular situation is all of that. If you want to make change, cause I can't preach to anybody else. I can't polish a jewel and give it to anybody else. You know what I mean? I can use my platform through music and my radio, my radio show and my social media. But in order for people to accept the jewel or to take the message and to run with it, they have to be willing to, you know, so a lot of people aren't. So where I figure you start is in the home with your children. Mm-hmm. Um, my two oldest boys, 17 and 114, I got to a point where uh, when it came to disciplining them, I got to a point where I stopped taking away privileges and punishing them. So what I would do is I would give them books to read. You better read from this chapter to that chapter. You know what I mean? Or the areas of, I felt that they were deficient in is knowing who they were and who, what culture they came from. Cause my children are biracial, you know, and I have to make sure that I tell them, I'm like, yeah, you're black. Yeah, you're white. But society sees you as a nigga. They see you as black, but it's your job to conduct yourself in a way to where Society no longer sees the color of your skin. They look at you for who you are as a person. And that's the goal, you know. So, but I also try to teach them to be culturally aware, be socially aware of what's going on around you. Believe nothing, question everything. Just because somebody told you something or you came across an article on the internet, seek your own knowledge and wisdom, you know what I mean? And think outside of the box. But for a long time there, for a while there, I thought that I was uh, – Preaching on deaf ears, like deaf ears, like because, you know, teenagers are dead, whatever. Okay, you know, all right, we're tired of hearing about this stuff, you know, and I'm sitting up here. I'm trying to arm them with I'm trying to arm them with knowledge, which eventually could protect them and preserve their life and also men empower them. So I thought for a while there, I just thought, you know what, man, they don't want to hear this shit. They don't want to hear. But long story short, um, my oldest son, when he was 14. He was a part of a protest in Eugene, Oregon, um, protesting uh, President Donald Trump. Trump, it came through Eugene, and there was a big protest. And so I asked him, I said, hey, I said, only thing I want to know is why? Why'd you go? What was your purpose? He said, so I could see, so I could learn why so many people are upset and why they feel the way that they do. So that let me know, like, he went with a purpose you know, which, which was to gain knowledge and to gain understanding. So I, I understood that. And recently he's been back in Eugene, Oregon, uh, with his mom for the summer. And, you know, this situation hit home for him because two or three weeks prior, he had an incident where he was in the state of California. And they were just being teenagers. My sister went to sleep, him and his cousin, Met up with a friend of theirs, you know, they're teenagers, they've been quarantining, California had a curfew, et cetera, et cetera. They met up with some girls at an elementary school and were shooting hoops at a basketball park. Well, when the police came, they ran. And they ran and got away. But the police end up seeing them walking, question them. The kid they're with is like, yeah, you know, the cop says, well, you know, that car that's back there at the school, we're going to have to tow it and impound it. And the kid that they're with is like, yeah, it, it was us who ran and so on and so forth. 
if my son wasn't, if my son or my nephew and my sister, my, my sister hadn't worked so hard to, to uh, make sure that her children were privileged to have a better life than we had when we were children, if they would have been one county over, two counties over, the, the probability of them being shot at, high. The probability of them being arrested, extremely high because they're young black men. My son is 17. You're 17 years old. They're about to issue systemic racism on you. They're going to charge you as an adult and lodge you in a county jail for running from the police at 17 years old. Now, guess what? Now you got a record. Now this follows you for the rest of your life. So now guess what? Not only are you African-American and you one notch down, now you African-American with a criminal record and you a couple notches down and you a couple laps back in the race, you mm -hmm. know? And so instead of yelling at him through a phone and yelling at my nephew through a phone, I just told him, I told him, I said, man, I give you way more tools than that. I'm super disappointed in you. Like I expect more from you. You're the oldest out of all of your siblings. I always preached to him. I said, hey man, either you're gonna be a good example for your brothers and sisters, or you're gonna be a bad example for your brothers and sisters. But either way you look at it, you're gonna be an example. You know, and fast forward to present day and present time, you know, he's been going to these pro these Black Lives Matters protests and these rallies, these peaceful rallies. And he said, Dad, I went to a pro, you know, I asked him, y'all, I said, hey, man, make sure you go. I want you to see this. I want you to embrace this. I want you to gain the knowledge and the wisdom, all the things that I've been trying to teach you and give you understanding about. And so he, you know, he called me back a day later and he just was so upset, you know. he, My son's never, he's watches social media, but he doesn't participate. Mm -hmm. That's kind of his thing. He watches, he has social media. He may like something, but he never comments. He never speaks his mind. He doesn't post many pictures on his Instagram or his Facebook, but he's been extremely active on social media and having rebuttals and, um, you know, having open dialogue with people from the same side and from opposite sides. And when he called me back, he was hurt. He was disappointed. He said, Dad, I went to a protest and he said they were destroying things. And he said, and not only were they destroying things, he said, I looked around and he said it was mostly young white kids destroying things. He said, man, why are y'all doing this? Because not only is this pointless, but they're going to turn around and blame this on us. They're not going to blame it on you. You know what I mean? And he said, so I left. I didn't want to be a part of it. He said, but I just, I'm going back to another peaceful protest tomorrow. You know what I mean? This is not something I pushed on my son, but I did. I, I, I felt like the conversations that I had with him, the books that I had him reading, the jewels that I've been trying to polish and give to him, the values and the morals. When I go back and I look at the rebuttals and the open dialogue and the conversation on Facebook and other social media and how he's socially conscious and aware and um, how he's articulate and he's also being receptive and understanding from people from other perspectives and other sides, I just feel like, okay, I feel like some of the job that I was doing as a parent and as a father rubbed off. Some of the values and the morals that I was trying to instill in him and knowledge and education I was trying to give him rubbed off. So when I felt like, you know, disappointed in a sense of like, man, my kids don't want to hear this shit that I'm talking about. You know what I mean? Like, they're not into this shit. You know, I, maybe I should stop feeding them this shit, you know, but I'm, I'm happy that I did. I'm grateful that I did. I'm also grateful to see the return of uh, the values and the morals and, you know, the knowledge and wisdom I was trying to give to them, I think is extremely important. There is something I would like to address um, while I have your ear. 
because I, I want to tell you thank you for giving me an opportunity to speak to you about this particular situation and what's going on in the country. And man, it's so different. It's so difficult to talk about these gentlemen. The two black, I, I feel like the last two black men that have been killed, they've been lynched. They've been lynched on in video, in broad daylight, in front of people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's painful, it's hurtful, it's frustrating. But I think you have to take things like this. I think the last year of my life, I've been learning to really um, compartmentalize things and to take negative energy and uh, focus it and turn it into positive energy. And I just hope that other people across the country can do that. Do you feel like things are getting better or worse for young black men? And that's the sad thing, man. I I feel like they're getting worse. I feel like they're getting worse. I really do. And it's a a scary, it's a, because if I didn't feel like they were getting worse, then I wouldn't be trying to arm my children you know, with the proper knowledge and wisdom. When I like, I've said this to you before. When I grew up, man, when we grew up, it was shit like stop, drop, and roll in case of a fire, um, earthquake, get in a doorway or under a desk, you know, dare, just say no to drugs, you know, or walking groups, stranger danger, you know, the kids nowadays, man, with technology and social media things have been are way different you have different political parties and companies pushing their own agendas you have so many things going on in the world i gotta teach i tell my kids man if there's a fucking school shooting hey man don't be no fucking hero and don't be no sitting duck get the fuck out of the school or go another way like this that's the world we're living in like that's how that's what we're really living in you see a man die right on camera the police put their knee in his neck and kill him you see this this is what you know what i mean so it's a different when you and i were children man like the rodney king thing that was luck that was luck that that was caught on a video camera that Mm -hmm. was sheer luck you know what i mean or somebody thinking on their feet having some type of um idea yo you know what i better record this now everyone is aware from the police to the president to the average Joe, everyone is walking around with the camera a swipe away. And you're still doing things like killing people in broad daylight. You're still doing these things. You want to know why? Because it's a sense of white privilege, no fear of consequence or repercussion. Here's what's going to blow your mind. Go look up the law for manslaughter, third degree murder in Minnesota. He's a cop. He's looking at seven to 10 years, right? If he's convicted and they, if they max him out, if they, they convict this guy and they max him out and give him 10 years. Do you know I have friends and family members that have done more time in federal prison or time in prison for victimless crimes, for selling drugs than taken and they've never taken a life? They never laid a finger on anybody. They sold drugs. That's what they did. What they did may have not been right. I know a guy got 24 years, another guy 18 years, 15, 10 years. That cop's never going to be in there that long. He took a man's life. So when you really add it up, that's that's systemic racism. That's what that is. The, the criminal justice system isn't made for us. It, it wasn't built for, by us. It was built to contain us, to control us. 
when you start really doing, people can say whatever they want, but when you start really doing the math and you really start doing the numbers and you could literally, Cody Liska could be charged and convicted of the exact same crime as Michael Coffey. The exact same crime in the exact same state, the exact same county by the exact same judge, right? But Cody Liska's time and sentence is far less than Michael Coffey's. That's it's it's man, it's it's clear as day. It's clear as day. And what we have to do as a country, what we have to do as a community, you know, as far as in Fairbanks or in Anchorage or in the state of Alaska, is we have this people. What I told my son was this. I said, son, I said, when the fires burn out and the voices and the protests quiet down, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna keep swimming against the current? Are you gonna go make sure that you get yourself involved with organizations that are trying to bring positive change. Are you going to keep up with the fight? So when all this shit gets back to semi-normal, people level out, are you still going to be a part of the fight? I said, that's who you pay attention. Pay attention to the people that's still being a part of the fight, taking their issues to Congress, paying attention to who they spend their dollar with or who they vote for. Are you going, are you going to keep with the fight? you going to stay with the daily grind, the waking up, and being a part of these positive organizations and these positive rallies and going to these town hall meetings and going and standing in front of Congress and saying, hey, this shit ain't right. Are you going to be a part of that group? Are you going to be part of the group that just goes back home and goes back into systemic racism and oppression and just, you know, they was just there for the moment? Who's there for the moment and who's there to really put in the work and really get the job done and to really make change? That's what you have to ask yourself. Think outside the box, associate with those people, associate with the ones that really want to see change and that are really working towards it. Team up with them, join them, be a part of them. You know what I mean? What did your son say when you asked him that? You know, he he gets it. He gets it. He gets it. I don't, you know, at this point as a parent, I, like I said, initially when I was giving him the information, I felt like it was going in one in and out the other. But now that I see that it has resonated, you know, now my next step as a parent is to, um, since I've laid down the groundwork and the foundation, now just, you know, start giving them, just start giving them more tools and more, uh, more material to keep building, to keep building the building, to keep building, you know, like I said, the, the knowledge, the wisdom and understanding, just, just, just sprinkle them. I don't have to overwhelm them. I don't got to browbeat them. I see where his brain is at. I see how his mind is working. So I just want to, you know, put wind behind those cells and keep them headed in the right direction. Does it bring you any solace to see so many people showing up to these rallies? It does, man. It does. But like I said, I'm a realist. Uh, I want to see how many people can continue to fight, continue to do the hard part. This is the easy part. Showing up somewhere, yelling, screaming, making signs. That's the easy part. Trying to make your initial voice heard. You know what I mean? Now I want to see who is there for the hard part. You know, like I said, to watching who you vote for, take your shit to Congress, watching who you spend your money with. Who do these people support? What have they been a part of? You know, because I look around, you know, and I see so many people are like, ah, well, you know, people should be just not be rioting in peaceful protests. Well, all of you thought Callie Kaepernick was a piece of shit because he peacefully nailed during the national anthem. Mm -hmm. He didn't fight, he didn't, he didn't riot, he didn't burn anything down. 
He didn't yell and scream. He didn't become the angry black man. He was a peaceful black man. And he lost, he, he sacrificed his career and his job. You know what I mean? And it essentially in my eyes was, uh, it be, became a martyr for the black man and the black person. Like, look, this is how you, they do you. Like, you don't, you don't even have to say nothing. This is how they do you if you take a knee. This is how they do. This is how they take away everything from you. Everything that you ever earned and worked for. Never been in trouble in your life. Always worked hard. Always wanted to work hard to try to achieve your goals and your dreams. And because you feel like people aren't treated right or you're not treated right and you decide to kneel, they strip everything from you. That's how they do niggas. That's how they do black people. That's, that's, that's really what happens. And he's a prime example. And I've told many of people, I say, hey, man, in my particular, my particular opinion, in my eyes, Colin Kaepernick never has to play another down in the NFL. And he, he is a Hall of Famer and he is a hero forever, you know. And then I also tell people, hey, man, you, you can't like Muhammad Ali and hate Colin Kaepernick. And you would be surprised. You would be surprised at the overwhelming people that look at me and tell me in my face, no, Muhammad Ali was different. He is different. Uh, Muhammad Ali was more was way more radical and outspoken than Colin Kaepernick. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so in the same light when, you know, I just feel like in a sense of Colin Kaepernick taking a stand the way that he has, he is the modern day Muhammad Ali in that sense and him taking a stand and standing firm like Muhammad Ali did, you know, in the, in the 60s. He took a stand. He believed in something. He believed about it. He said, we're not treated right. We're not treated fairly. Why would I want to go fight in a war when, when me and all my people don't even have all of our rights? Mm-hmm. You know, stripped him of his title, you know, put him in prison, you know. So when you look at those things, you know, and now in present, you fast forward to present day, shit, man, you go in white people's homes, they got pictures of Muhammad Ali, they got magazines, they got books about him, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And they consider him the greatest too, that he's he's heroic, he's this, you know, this big figure bigger than life, you know what I mean? So I feel like because of the way that America is, and we always get to a point where we take 10, 20, 30 years for us to get over the hump, to change our ideals and certain things about the way that we see uh, the black culture or people in general. So I hope that this works. I don't, I'm not up for the violence. I don't think that they should be looting things, whether it's black neighborhood, white neighborhood, corporate company. I don't think that they should be doing that. I don't stand behind that. That's for individual gain and individual purpose. Right now, we need to be for we need to be doing things that benefit everyone, especially you know everyone of our race and our culture and people of color. That's what we need to be focusing on, not taking some shit or ruining some shit. We want to ruin some, ruin the system. Let's ruin the system. Let's let's do it the right way. Let's get out. Let's vote. Let's you know what I mean. Let's pass laws. Let's do certain things. Let's do that. I know people are emotional, man. I'm emotional about the whole situation. Like, I watched that video one time. That's it. I don't need to see it no more. It is literally ingrained in my brain. Mm-hmm. Literally. I don't need to see it no more. I don't want to watch it on those. Man, I haven't had my TV on in days, dog. I don't want to watch that shit. I've been watching what I look at in social media. I don't want to see that shit no more. Because it's hard already. It's hard for me to control my emotions and compartmentalize. I'm like, damn, man, this is like a... 
it's overwhelming. It's too emotionally uh, overwhelming to be watching them videos because what happens is it becomes hard to contain your emotion. So now when I want to go out and see a police officer and fight him and hurt him or be aggressive towards him, nah, man, the likelihood of, the likelihood of me, you know, succumbing to, you know, gunfire or a new case is high. You know, and so I can't allow my emotions to get the best of me, but not everyone thinks like that and not everybody is focused like that and can compartmentalize and use negative to turn to positive. It's really hard, especially when emotions are involved and race is a part of those emotions. You know, man, I, I think that does it for my questions, unless there's anything else you'd like to add. Nah, man, not at all. I just appreciate you using your platform, taking your time and uh, being socially conscious and aware and doing a good job. Cause I look around, this is my community, this is my state. I read newspapers, I read articles. I look at the different writers, who they are, what their approach is, whether they're on the right side, left side, whether they report the right news. And all I can tell you is, I've told you this before, man, I think that as far as journalism is concerned and from providing information to the community and public about the true fabric of Alaska, I think that you do that. So continue to do that and continue to use your platform for everything, anything that you think is worthy. Thanks, man. And yeah. I, I mean, as always, I, I appreciate that, but I appreciate the conversation more. So thank you. No doubt, boss. All right, you take it easy. Peace. In this next conversation, I talk with journalist Zakia McCummings, who works as a program producer at Alaska Public Media. As I was writing questions for you, something that came to mind was back in 2017 when I had a brief stint as the editor of the Anchorage Press, I asked if you were interested in being a guest editor for the Black History Month issue of the newspaper. You agreed, and that issue was a big success. When you were putting that issue together, what kinds of things did you think were important to focus on? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think to me, a good journalist is just someone who is asking a question and then says, how do I find that answer? So for me, the specifically the Black History Month issue, I didn't really know anything about Black history, specifically in Alaska um, at that time. And so for me, it was kind of exploratory of I was kind of given permission to, like, go out and see what you can find. And um, I just kind of I kind of looked everywhere. I didn't actually set out originally with any specific stories in mind or anything like that. Um, there was one story, uh, a story about redlining, um, which is the practice of uh, kind of segregating uh, people of color into certain areas of town and then not investing in those areas of town. I knew I wanted to do that story because I was familiar with that process happening in Alaska, but I didn't really know much beyond that. Um, so when I was putting that uh, issue together, really... It was kind of me just asking very basic questions of, you know, like, what civil rights stuff happened here? Where did black people go here and hang out and what did they do? It was just asking those really basic questions and then trying to find someone who could best answer it. Mm -hmm. And kind of fast forwarding to right now, what has been or what was your initial reaction to learning about the killing of George Floyd? So I 
think I kind of had a different approach to um, the, my actual social media interaction with it than most people did. I actually, um, once I first found out about it and everything was going on and it started blowing up, I actually kind of took the preemptive step to remove myself from social media for about a week. Um, and that's because I think one part of this that gets really lost when we're constantly resharing images and videos of people like literally being tortured to death, right? Like this is, um, we watched a man slowly suffocate for nine minutes. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, I haven't watched that video. And for me, it's because it's, it's a traumatic experience to watch that as a black person, because that could be me, or that could be my brother, or, um, you know, that could be my friend, that could just be another human person who just looks like me, and people are just watching him die. Um, that's a really, really emotional thing to see and experience and have to process. And so when this stuff first started happening, I just took the preemptive decision to remove myself from social media so that I could deal with those feelings on my own privately, rather than kind of watching the world react and having to throw my interaction into the mix. Mm -hmm. What were those early conversations with your friends and family like? Hmm. Well, I honestly didn't really talk about it with anyone. Um, the first, I want to say maybe the first three or four days, I really kept to myself about it. And that's more about me as a person individually. I'm a very empathetic person. Um, I probably will never watch that video because it will, like, quite frankly, it would just haunt me. Um, so... I really, when that, when this first happened, I really knew who I am as a person and my level of empathy and knew I needed to step away. Um, and then after that, uh, the first conversations that I had about it were with my roommates who are both white. Um, so it was interesting because um, I think they did a good job of asking me when they first asked me about it, it wasn't like, how are you doing or how are you feel? Um, because I think you kind of know when you have to ask that question that the person who would respond isn't going to feel great. You know, like we we asked that question, but we kind of already know the answer. Mm -hmm. um, so I had interesting kind of thought provoking conversations with my roommates and um, kind of thought, talking about things on the whole and and where we can go and what happens next. But then when I had the conversation with my mom, that was a very different conversation. Um, it was a lot more, I don't even know if emotional is the correct word, um, because it wasn't like we were crying or getting really into a heated discussion. It was more like we were kind of just sitting together, being together and kind of processing together that this happened. Um, I almost feel like my first conversations with my family about this weren't actually conversations. It was really just kind of being in mostly silence together and just kind of trying to process those emotions together. Um, I think that because we live in a society in which a lot of stuff is on the internet and um, most of us rely on social media, we have this idea that we need to outwardly show an emotion or reaction to something going on in the world. And I think that there is something to be said about sometimes you really just need to process those emotions personally. So I had kind of a more 
outward talking focus discussion about it with my roommates, but a much more kind of private, intimate, um, emotional, I would say more moment than conversation with my family. Would you say that there was a difference in how different generations talk about this? Mm, you know, I actually, uh, this week had a conversation with my grandfather um, and it was really good because it kind of put in perspective for me the way that time moves. So my grandfather, he was alive and well during Jim Crow laws. He remembers Jim Crow. My grandfather graduated from a segregated high school. Um, he remembers when Emmett Till happened. So I think more than anything, it's made me as a younger person realize that, you know, these are um, these are things we've kind of been experiencing generationally and they slowly change over time. Um, but I think when I talked with my grandfather about it, he was, I thought that he might be like, mm, for lack of a better word, sad or seeing kind of history repeating or, um, yeah, I think repeating, I'll, I'd say repeating. Um, but he was really hopeful. Um, we talked about how when he was growing up during Jim Crow, a lot of times we'll watch movies about Jim Crow or the civil rights movement and see something horrible happen to a character and think, you know, like, how could you put up with that? Like, if that happened to me, I would have da 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 da. And my grandfather made the great point of, you know, like, we grew up in that, like, we didn't know anything else. We didn't know to ask for anything else or expect anything else. Um, so I think for him, it seemed like it's more this kind of beacon of hope because really the only thing we know that is constant is change. Mm -hmm. um, that's the only thing that's guaranteed is that things will change. Um, so I think for, for when I was speaking with older members in my family, it's more the hope of change continuing. So as you continue having these conversations from the beginning of this to now, have you noticed a change or an evolution in those conversations at all? I I would say so. Um, I think when I I recently started on social media again after kind of my long break, and I think the thing that was most surprising to me is um, just as a journalist, I tend to just follow a lot of different people for no reason other than I want a good mix of people on my timeline to see what's happening locally. Um, and so I was really surprised to see the amount of people who were openly having this discussion, right? So I very vividly remember when Trayvon Martin happened. Um, and I believe I was a senior in high school. And it was a much more charged conversation that we were having. And it was a much smaller group of people, I feel, having that conversation. I think what the George Floyd video specifically did is... Um, there's there's kind of a, a societal sense of shame, I think, as Americans seeing a man die mm -hmm. in police custody slowly over nearly 10 minutes, just in a video with no no cuts or anything, just seeing that happen. I I think there's like this this feeling of shame that that happened here. We don't a lot of people say like that can't happen here or that shouldn't happen here and it shouldn't. But I think the the result of that kind of collective 
feeling of shame is the this intense conversations we're now having, right? So um, people are suddenly having to really actually have these conversations with other people about racism, about um, police brutality, about uh, economic disparities. We're really, I think what's happening is America is, is kind of ripping the Band-Aid off of this thing that we've covered for a long time and not really openly addressed. And so I think that the reaction of people around the country is really a response to that. It's this, it's like a, it seems almost like a powder keg. Like we've been holding in having this conversation so long out of fear. Like it's, it's scary to talk about racism, right? Like it's scary to talk about like that some people are just treated differently than others for no other reason than their skin tone. But we have to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. And I think um, this specific moment in time, we've just reached a point as a, a society where we're trying to have that conversation. And for me as a journalist, um, what I kind of see my my role in it is I have to present um, research and facts about all the things that are going on. I have to present that research for people to make their own decisions. Um, I think sometimes when I was younger as a journalist, I would feel kind of frustrated, like I couldn't make change fast enough or maybe my my story wasn't good enough. And I think the older I get, the more I understand to me, journalism is it's about doing the research so people can read the research and kind of do with that what they will and go on to whatever next steps they choose. And I I think this time in particular has made me have to be okay with that um, and being okay with the fact that my role, I feel the role of journalism in this time is just to provide all the research to our audience. And then the audience, it's up to them to choose what they do with that research and, and how they use that research. How do you separate your personal response from the journalistic objective response? I think we have to accept, and I think we all kind of know that there's no such thing as a um, a 100% neutral journalist, right? Like, I don't exist without any opinions at all. You don't exist without any opinions at all. Mm -hmm. um, but we have to report on things fairly. And, and to me, fairly means that we are presenting every fact as we find it, whether or not that fact plays into my personal beliefs. So I think that's kind of how I look at that. It's when I am looking at or editing a story or inviting guests onto a show, it is my responsibility as a journalist to ask myself um, when I don't want a guest on or when I do want a guest on why that is. And if it's a personal reason, then I have to kind of remove myself from that. And, and the way that I the way that I interpret that is it is my job to allow people to hear voices from the community, regardless of if I agree with those voices and what they're saying. And I think in order even to have a conversation, we can't just have a conversation with people who we agree with, or we we can't just have a conversation with um, with people who are already um, already think one way or another. Right. So it's it's difficult. I won't pretend like it's it's an easy thing. And it's also really um, 
I think right now, journalism on a whole, we're all kind of having this conversation. Um, one thing that's come up, I can't remember, I think it was New York Times or one of the big major publications. They uh, been talking about within their newsroom whether or not journalists can attend Black Lives Matters protests, not as a reporter. Mm-hmm. And um, without going into like super deep detail, we've had to have that conversation here, too. And I think that this is kind of a time where journalism is also having to look inward and say, you know, where do we draw these lines? One one person said um, in the New York Times story, you know, this isn't a, a political issue. It's a human rights issue. So like who gets to decide that? How do we decide that? Where do we draw the line in in protesting Um for now, I I choose to just either go as a reporter or not go at all. Um, and that's because for most journalists, it's we're doing a lot to make sure that we don't appear biased. And so that means that, like, I technically I don't have a voting party. I don't put up signs in my yard. I don't really go to any protests, not just Black Lives Matter protests. Right. So um, it's it's a hard it's a hard thing but i think that most journalists i know at least feel like giving up that small liberty is worth it to try and do the good reporting and make sure people are informed about what's going on locally Mm -hmm. as a young black woman in alaska have you ever felt discriminated against (laughs) i'm sorry i'm not like trying to laugh it's just I it's always kind of funny to me when during an interview, someone asks a person of color, like, have you ever been discriminated against? Like, yes, we're here talking about racism. So, of course, I have. Um, But I do. I think um, at least for me growing up in Alaska, I didn't experience a lot of what I would call overt racism, you know, so um, I can only count on one hand maybe the amount of times where like someone said a racial slur directly to me rather than like saying it in my presence or something like that which is just kind of the lived reality of um black people growing up predominantly around white people um but uh when was that maybe three or four years ago I was like pumping gas at a gas station in Eagle River and some kids like whipped out into the street and started like shouting stuff at me. Um, And that was really shocking only for the fact that that was the first time that had ever happened to me in my hometown. Um, So, I mean, I've definitely experienced those things, but I, yeah, I mean, any person of color that you ask about experiencing discrimination will have a story for you. For sure. And the reason I asked that question is to get to this question, and that is, how do you think situations like that affect the person you eventually become? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, hmm. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. I won't speak to black people as a whole, but I can at least speak to myself personally. And I think growing up in Alaska, I always had a sense of that's a thing that happens elsewhere. Um, And that's because growing up here, I didn't experience a lot of what I would call overt racism. So 
being called names or obviously being not allowed to go somewhere simply because of the color of my skin. I didn't really experience those things growing up here. Um, the things I experienced were much more covert. So um, people thinking like, oh, don't mess with her because she's scary, even though I'm like a, like a little baby. Like I've never been in a fight in my life, right? But there's this idea of like, black people are aggressive and good at fighting and or good at sports and like all these things that I just wasn't. Um, and so I think for me personally, the way that it affected who I am as a person today is it made me realize that no matter where I am and no matter what I am doing, there will always be someone who's going to see me for my color first. And I understand that as I'm saying it, that could sound like really sad and like in the end it kind of is. But I think for me, coming to a point of acceptance where I just accept that there are gonna be some people, even if there's a huge movement and we become a country that really truly vilifies racism, there will still be racists. Um, I don't know that racism could quote unquote end. Um, and so for me, it it taught me like some people are just never going to like me and I'm going to be okay with that because I'm not going to carry that weight around for myself. So I think really, if anything, that's what that taught me is just how how to be okay being in my own skin, even though it may not seem okay to others. Mm -hmm. So the other day we were talking on Instagram and you said that you haven't gone to any rallies. Why is that? Uh, there's a couple of things. I'll start with the first one, which is the easiest, which is as a journalist, I don't attend any protests unless I'm there as a reporter, unless I'm just there documenting. And we had already sent other reporters, which isn't to say that I couldn't have gone and also done my own documentation, but I chose not to. The second thing is I just, as a person who I am, I have a lot of social anxiety, which might seem surprising as a journalist's entire job is just to talk to people. Um, but for me, being in a large crowd, that's kind of anxiety inducing. So even if it, like, if it was a protest for like, free lunch for all schools. I I still wouldn't go just because there's so many people around and that gives me a lot of anxiety. Mm -hmm. But the third reason is that people need to understand that when you're going to a protest, any kind of protest like Black Lives Matter or a Pride Parade or anything like that, you're really putting yourself in a position in which you have to be prepared for and okay with the possibility of getting hurt. And I think for me, I am not comfortable with that as a black woman. Um, I'm not comfortable with putting myself in a position where I could encounter um, not even, and when I say encounter someone, I don't even just mean police, you know, there, there are counter protesters. There could just be someone passing in their car who doesn't like what you're, you're protesting and gets out and starts harassing you. For me, there is no, there's no reward in trying to fight that feeling because I, I just, that match with my social anxiety is just too much for me. Um, so I, I elect not to do protests for those kind of complicated reasons. 
You know, I wonder, how do you think Alaska fits into the national conversation about racism and police brutality? Well, I would shy away from giving any personal kind of opinions about it, but from a journalistic point, um, I... I've been following the local response to George Floyd, specifically on Twitter, because Twitter, um, there have been a lot of people sending in photos and updates about protests in really small communities in Alaska. Um, Unalakleet just had one. Utkiadvik had a Black Lives Matter protest. Kotzebue, Sitka. Um, so a lot of these smaller communities are are having their, their own protests, you know? Um, so... There were all of these, uh, all of these protests all across the state, and these are in small communities. A lot of them are primarily Alaska Native communities, and um, I actually tweeted, uh, I think it was last week, that the one thing that I've consistently noted noticed while reading the reporting from these protests is that a lot of Alaska Native residents have said that they they resonate with the Black Lives Matter. Mu- a movement because they feel a similar generational pain. And so I think for me, when we're talking about this movement here in Alaska, it's it's a little more complicated, I would say, than just somewhere in the lower 48, because I don't think in Alaska you can separate the issues that Black Alaskans might have from the issues that Alaska Natives have. I think they're kind of intertwined. So I think when we're having that conversation in Alaska, we have to make sure that we include indigenous people and indigenous voices. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that that does it for my questions. Did you have anything else you'd like to add? Mm. You know, when you asked me to be on the show, I uh, at first when I read your message, um, hopefully this is not TMI for your listeners, but it said like, prominent uh black people in the community and i was like huh am i prominent and i think um and then i had to like look at myself and think about what i've been doing in the work that i've been doing and when i think back to the very early beginnings of my journalism career i what i really wanted to accomplish was kind of putting myself out there and being seen and heard by other people who look like me so that they know that those people exist and they can do this work too and so then fast forward, I've been doing this work for five years now. Um, and I don't often think of myself as a veteran of this job, right? Like to me, I always think of myself as a rookie because I can always learn more or be more. But, you know, I have done a lot of stuff. I've worked with a lot of different organizations. I've interviewed a lot of different people. Um, more and more now, I interact with people in public who recognize my voice from public radio. So I think the main thing is just for any other Black people out there who are in any sort of position of power or visibility, just be okay being in that position and take ownership of it and, and be proud of it. Like I I'm proud that I am a member of my community that people feel like they can come to with questions um, or with suggestions for shows. You know, we I've I've gotten emails from listeners who have talked to me about things that they might not have ever emailed the station about if they didn't know that there was another uh, black voice there that would be willing to listen to them. So um, I think that 
visibility matters. And if you are like me and have been doing something for a long time or or people tell you that you have value, listen to them and then use that power to talk about what's going on and and elevate uh, whatever work you're doing. So for me, I would just say that if you're listening, please go and check out the amazing work that uh, Alaska Public Media and the wider uh, Alaska Public Radio Network has been doing about the uh, Black Lives Matter protests around the state. Uh, Mayo Aina, uh, Rasha McChesney, Wesley Early. These are all some great reporters who have been doing some great things, and uh, you guys should all go and check them out. Well, thank you so much, Z. This has been awesome talking with you. Yay, I'm so glad. Thank you so much for inviting me. I look forward to seeing how it turns out. In this last conversation, I talk with Mike Thompson, who has worked as a teacher at East High School in Anchorage for about 23 years. When you think about what's going on in this country right now, what are your thoughts? I I try and be a realist. I, 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 it's hard for me to predict what's going on. Naturally, in sort of things like this, uh, I, like many people, have a tendency to try and think where are we going and, and try and look at what the current situation is and how that's going to lead us in the direction of the future. Um, but also being a realist, I, I can't deny the history of these types of circumstances that, uh, obviously this is different. Uh, uh, the death of George Floyd has had a much larger impact than I predicted when I first saw it. When I first saw the video, um, it was horrific. It was, even more horrific than the other ones because as a society, we get drawn into the visuals and the audio that we're going to be impacted by that more than just a third-hand or uh, a second-hand accounting of it. But when I saw it, I was thinking, this is tragic, this is horrible, this is upsetting, I'm angry. But I didn't expect as many people to be as angered as well. History had taught me that people get jaded with these things, whether it was Orlando Castillo, whether it was Trayvon Martin, whether it was Michael Brown, Ahmed Arbery, you think about all these guys, all these horrible situations, and society hadn't moved in mass. Uh, the white population hadn't, hadn't been outraged sufficiently. To be perfectly honest, a lot of people in the African American community had kind of gotten in the same mindset where I, where I was at, where this is horrible, but we didn't count on change because we hadn't seen change happen in, in this type of area before. So I'm hopeful, but I also know that these types of things have a expiration date, have a shelf life. I hope that people can stick it out for the long haul and try and see change as opposed to what happens where things drift back into what shouldn't be acceptable, but what is the norm. Why do you think that is that people at a certain point, become complacent about this? I think all of it is susceptible to the concept of instant gratification, that we want to see something happen. We feel, like, for example, um, when I teach my students at school, um, I have a lot of kids sometimes who get emotional, who get upset, who get angry. And one thing I'm talking about is that it's, it's hard to be angry all the time. It's exhausting. And when people want change, and they're driven to try and push the change. Uh, it's, it, it's a lot of times it's based on 
an emotional reaction to something. I don't know anybody who didn't see that video of George Floyd and not have an emotional response. But it's an exhausting state to be in. I think people can push hard and be angry and want to see change. If the change doesn't happen, if the change gets slow, the anger dissipates and they move on to other things. And I think that's a natural tendency that uh, everybody has a breaking point, and that breaking point is common for all of us is the concept of time, that we can only maintain something for so long. We can only be in a certain state for so long. And if we feel like nothing's going to change that way, we either try a different tactic, but in political instances that's rare, or two, we move on to something else. Mm -hmm. So one thing that you just said that I, I really like is that it's hard to be angry all the time. What is some of the reactions or what are some of the reactions from your students when you tell them this? Um, a lot of them not because, because they know it, it's, it's something that they feel a lot, but the problem is that they have trouble controlling that emotion. It's in part because they're younger, but also um, anger, anger doesn't really solve a lot of problems. Anger can get a lot of attention. But in terms of solving problems, you have to be level-headed. And I think that's the thing that has to happen. I have a, some friends of mine uh, who, who are black who, especially during this time, they're like, you know what, enough is enough. They're, they're sick of it. They're tired. And they understand the anger. Um, and I even know a couple who are okay with the, the rioting that took place, the, the pockets of rioting. They said, you know what, uh, they didn't listen any other way. They're paying attention now, so that's fine, and just by the means. But when I saw that, and I remember talking to my dad about it, is that is something that is a shiny object that's easy for people who are resistant to change to kind of focus in on because no one really wants to deal with somebody who's angry and irrational. You can be moved by emotion, but it has to have a purpose. It has to have a direction. It has to have specified goals. If I'm sitting there with my kids and my daughter's upset about something, I want to know what's going on. I want to know what's wrong. But if she's upset about something and she's destroying the house, now my primary focus is her destroying the house. It's not what caused the anger. So when I talk to my students about it, I'm trying to talk to them about it in a way where it's okay to be upset. It's okay to be angry, but you want to channel that toward goals. You want to have something that you're moving toward, and you don't want your message to be overruled by the way you are presenting your message. You know, I had this thought the other day that one of the reasons why we're all paying so much attention to this situation when there has been countless other situations that we should have been paying attention to is because of the pandemic and that we have all been made to sit with our thoughts and contemplate ourselves as well as like the world we live in and i think that that has made us a little bit more self-aware of our fellow man mm -hmm. yes and, and i agree um i agree with that entirely that you know sometimes i mean you know as well as i do uh the internet has done a, a number on my ability to focus on any single thing I can have a plan to go online to search for one specific thing, and 15 minutes later, I'm on something completely different and have no idea. I can't even remember what my original purpose was. Um, you take 
uh, sports out of the equation, take uh, gathering with people out of the equation. For some people, you take work out of the equation, and that's what they can focus on. And then so they can channel with it in, in that aspect. I, I do hope that as people start to adjust and adapt to where we are right now with the pandemic and they start to uh, get back out there, that they don't lose sight of the focus. I think um, – I can't remember who said, I think it was Will Smith who said something to the effect recently that racism hasn't gotten worse, it's just gotten recorded. (laughs) And, Hmm. but the key thing, like I was thinking about this actually just yesterday. I was sitting there and I I was on my motorcycle and I was riding it to the shop to drop it off. And I was just thinking like, what, how different might my life have been if when I moved up here, instead of getting into snowboarding, um, if I would have gotten into like, motocross or something and how dramatically that would have shifted things because obviously we wouldn't be having this conversation right now because during that period in my life when I was so deep into snowboarding it shaped my worldview it shaped all my personal interactions with everyone and I Mm -hmm. look at that in the same aspect when I think about issues of race and culture that we most people tend to hang out with people who are who share their racial, ethnic background, who share their political beliefs, who share their regional culture. So you get in that bubble and that's all you see. So I think as I talk about the motocross example, I never even thought about that until I started riding motorcycles now. And now I see a a completely different culture that I was blind to. And the thing happens to us uh, when it comes to race and ethnicity because the problem is, um, the, one of the biggest problems with, when it comes to race and ethnicity in this country is that most people think they know more than they do about culture. Like, for example, East High is incredibly diverse. But just because we're so diverse doesn't mean we understand or pay attention to or even care about all the cultures that we're exposed to every day. We have people of African-American, people of African descent. We have people of Middle Eastern descent. Uh, we have European exchange students. We have a, a host of uh, people who immigrated to this country from Asia and from South and Central America. But we know them. We know their names. We know their, their classes. But we don't really take the time to learn their culture, so we just assume. And a perfect example. Um, just I try and, I try and be as helpful as I can when when people need me. I had a friend of mine who I work with email me the other day that he needed uh, or text me the other day because he needed his help moving. He is predominantly white. Um, now, in this circumstance, he was moving up, and he needed his help uh, carrying some furniture into his apartment. I said, sure. And then he contacted me and said, yes, there's a problem. Um, they locked the keys inside the apartment on the second floor. The window's open. Uh, we can just get it. I have the lease on me. And he asked if he could borrow a ladder. And I told him, yeah, you can borrow my ladder, but I'm not going to be there as a black man hanging outside your apartment with a ladder as, as you crawl through the window. <laughs> in, his mind, in his mindset, and this just happened a week ago, and his mindset was, oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. And I'm not mad at him for that because it's not his experience. But mm-hmm. in my mind, there was no way that was going to happen. And he's known me for a few years, but – he doesn't know the experiences. He hasn't lived through some of the things that I've lived through that have shaped my perception of, about why I might not feel comfortable in that situation. So he he did what he had to do. I was at the gas station getting gas and water, and he let me know when he was done. In your experience as a 
teacher at a very diverse school, what seems to work the best as far as students understanding one another? So in my classes, and I saw this uh, a few years ago during the last presidential election, um, and actually even before then, when I teach mainly upper classmen, so juniors and seniors, so I was never as strict with the seating chart as I was with, with my freshmen. So come in, sit where you're comfortable, you're going to be in work groups, and, and go for it. And, you know, people tend to sit with friends or people that they know. And that was fine. But then it was pointing out of the problem that I addressed earlier, that people sit with like-minded people, people sit with people in their cultures, and then they weren't broadening out as much as I wanted them to. And that actually increased tension because groupthink is a real thing. If you have two people who are there, who let's say you have a group of three, and two people feel strongly about a topic, and the third person doesn't feel as strongly about the topic, but they want to support the people who are like them, their friends, their teammates, whoever it may be, so they may jump in. And then now the other group feels like we need to solidify our mindset too, and it becomes a competitive thing. So what I started to do was every unit, and let's say it's a semester-long class, we may have six, seven units for that semester. I change seats every time, and I do it by ability level. I do it by racial ethnic background. I do it by gender. And, for example, at East we have a, uh, a sizable Hmong population as well. And, and some of my Hmong students, and not even just some of my Hmong students, but some of my Hispanic students as well who are Spanish speakers or Spanish is their, is their first language, they may sit together as a comfort level. And there are language barriers there. So going back to the Hmong kids, I, I may have, and it never fails, like we have some Hmong kids who come into a class who, who will sit all at one table. So the first unit when they come in, you can sit wherever you want because I want them to start off being comfortable before I start moving things around. Maybe the next unit I may say, you know what, I'm going to have uh, one monk at this table with two non-monk speakers. And then if, at the same time, that next unit, I may have two monk speakers at the table and one non-monk speaker because if they need that non-monk speaker needs to know what it's like to be in that circumstance as well. So I'm getting them to blend groups. Now, they may complain about it at the beginning, but they understand why. And then by the end, it's not a big deal. But it, it's nice to look out and see people communicating who normally would not communicate normally. Because high school or school in general is not the real world. In the real world, you get out there and you get to pick and choose who you're going to be partnering with in, in certain circumstances. Like, for example, if I work with someone and there's some a teacher that I don't like, I don't really have to work with them for anything. I can pass off information to them there, but there are very few projects that we have to work together on. So I'm trying to use this opportunity since they're forced to be together in, in a high school setting where they have to learn about each other. And that goes beyond race. It goes with gender issues. It goes with income issues. It goes with religious issues. Um, there's been some growth for some students uh, through this process where they say, you know what, I have to care about this person because this person isn't just a stranger anymore. And once they start to see the common interests that they have and the common goals, that makes things easier. I think with the George Floyd situation, one thing that can resonate with people is when they think about the fact that he was a father and they see his daughter uh, on the news, or they hear his brother uh, testifying before Congress, that they can internalize that. They don't know what it's like to be to be black, but they do know what it's like to have family. And I think that can help resonate.
So I know it's summertime and you're not teaching right now, but do you know how you'd be talking to your class about all this? The first thing I would do is um, I would listen. Because first, the first thing I have to do is I have, I have to read I have to read the room. So, for example, I'll let the and it, it would always happen. I have a student come in who would say something to the effect of, "Did you see what's going on?" or "That's messed up." And I would hear I would let them say their piece briefly for a minute because there are other people who wouldn't know what's going on, and then there are other people who do the worst thing, uh, who wouldn't take it as seriously, and they may start joking about it. And then you have problems. Mm-hmm. And and then once I read the room there, the next step is and and it's it's sad to say, but it's true. I would have to spell out the facts of what happened because in the age of the of the internet, people are going to have false information or inaccurate information because the class would go nowhere if we can't agree on certain stipulated facts. And that's the benefit I have, and that's another way that the classroom is nothing like the real world is. They will look to me based on the way that I conduct my class and I present these. And because I've talked with you about this before, I don't take stances or opinions in class. I'd like to let them develop their own. So if I state something as a fact, I have a trust level built up with them. Where they, if I say that he was kneeled upon, uh, George Floyd's neck was kneeled upon by a police officer for eight minutes and 46 seconds, even kids who say, you know what, I thought it was fake, will say, you know what, no, Mr. Thompson is going, he's not going to mislead us on this. So, I had that ability where society doesn't. If certain people don't want to believe in certain facts, then, then they're not going to. I don't know if you saw in the news. Uh, I think it was oh, – I just saw it yesterday. I don't know when it happened. But uh, there was a corrections officer in New Jersey and a uh, FedEx worker in New Jersey. The corrections officer was suspended uh, pending an investigation. The FedEx worker was fired uh, because while there was a Black Lives Matter protest going on, they were part of a group that was reenacting George Floyd's death, where one guy had his knee on the other guy's neck, and they were doing it as sort of a, a parody against the protesters. And that's mm-hmm. and that's a horrible thing to do. Yeah. But at the same time, it's the things they were spouting. They were spouting things based on their own belief circumstances. That you know, he was resisting. He was resisting because that's what they wanted to believe, and they had found some information online that supported their mindset. Where in class, I can lay out certain facts, and that makes it easier. I did see that. And like you were like you were saying earlier, it's, it's easy to get bombarded with so much information on the internet. And I have to admit that I still haven't watched the video of, mm-hmm. of George Floyd because I know what it is and i know it's going to make me angry i know it's going to make me sick um Mm -hmm. i've seen those videos before and i i it it will affect me for days and weeks so i i guess i am it's not blissfully ignorant it's like i know what it is and i know i'm going to watch it one day but i'm I, i don't know in a way like protecting myself for right now yeah, and, and I, that's completely understandable. I mean, um, as you know, I teach U.S. history. Um, I, in my free time, I don't go and watch, even though I know they're excellent movies, I don't watch any movies really that deal with issues like slavery or the Holocaust. I tend to avoid those because I have to teach these things so often. I, I know how the story ends, 
And in my free time, there's enough going on in the real world that depresses me and brings me down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in no danger of forgetting about, that the Holocaust happened or that slavery existed. I, I don't want to be brought down emotionally in my free time at that point. Sometimes you don't need to see the event. Like, and I, I, I chalk you up in this category, Cody. Y- you get it. <laughs> you know what the problems are. Um, knowing that the, t- the, the tape is out there or the, the video is out there and the audio is out there is powerful. Um, but it's especially powerful for those who don't get the reality of the current situation. Those mm-hmm. individuals, I think, really need to see that. For example, I, I watched it. I've seen it once. Um, I'll never watch it again. And I don't need to watch it again because I already know what, what needs to be done and I already understand the reality. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first time you learned about the killing of a black man or woman by law enforcement? It's odd for me. Um, I can't remember the first time, um, but growing up uh, in the Chicagoland area, I did have, unfortunately, some people I know who died through violent means. And, and that's a jarring thing. Like, like growing up, the first death I remember was a, a grandparent. And that's, it was tremendously sad, but at the same time, it's not unexpected. Uh, it's an older individual. It's a natural cycle of life. You understand that. But one of the first deaths that really impacted me, um, where I was really old enough to pay attention, ha- happened to me when I was in high school. Uh, one of my best friends, his cousin, who was also my friend, uh, died violently. And he was 16. And it was jarring for that to happen, that that was senseless, it didn't have to happen. Understanding the details that this is something that didn't need to happen. Um, when it comes to law enforcement, it, it's a step up. And this is one of the, the discussions I've had with people previously when it came to gun violence. You'll hear this sometimes from people who want to look away from the issue of police violence. They'll say, well, yeah, there's, uh, the, the murder rate in inner cities is high. You have black people killing black people. Why aren't you as outraged there? And the response is, I'm outraged anytime there's murder. But it's something different. It's a different element when the person who commits the murder is the person whose job it is to protect. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the next element. So when I started hearing about these things, I, I had that reaction because as an African-American male, I've had instances where I was obviously profiled in general, but by the police, where I had negative interactions with the police. So it was something that I could easily see happening, and not just uh, in that situation, but happening to me, where I felt like I've had to be extra careful. Um, but sometimes I talk to other people who weren't in that circumstance or who weren't of my race the background, and their first concept is disbelief, uh, not necessarily from the mindset where they think I'm lying, but from the mindset that they don't want to believe that that horrible thing happened. And I think that's where, that's where it comes from. And that's part of the disconnect. So when I first heard of police violence or instances of, well, well, police violence is, I know individuals who have been treated rougher by the police than they should have. I don't know anybody who was killed by the police in those circumstances. But the natural tendency for some of us to say, you know what, something must have happened. There must have been some circumstances. I think we all do that. It's a natural concept that we want to make sense of the world, that, that it's not the system that's broken. Something must have happened. Because if the system's broken, then we're all at risk. 
So I think mm-hmm. the natural tendency is anytime, regardless of race, there's like, let's say um, someone gets murdered, we see it on the news. As a society, it's sad, but it's it's generally true for most of us. If we can, in our minds, get ourselves to believe that the person who got killed was in an avoidable situation, that makes us feel better about their death because we weren't at risk. So mm-hmm. if I'm sitting there and I'm watching the news and I see that someone was murdered last night in Anchorage, and if if they say, yeah, that person was selling drugs on a the corner, then that makes me feel better that that person did something wrong. It's not worthy of their death, but they put themselves in an avoidable situation, and that makes them uncomfortable uh, or makes them feel more comfortable. But when it comes to systemic issues where it's just someone's race that puts them in that situation, that puts them at risk, then we have to examine the bigger issues. You know, there's a bigger problem. And the next step is to get people who aren't as impacted by the problem to care about the problem. I was talking with my uh, sister-in-law uh, about a week, week and a half ago about these types of issues. And I'll, I'll tell you the same thing I told her. When it comes to issues of race or, or issues of racism, black people alone can't solve racism, just like women alone can't solve sexism and the LGBTQ plus community can't solve homophobia. Mm-hmm. It has to be the dominant group that has to play a big part in this because it's their behaviors that have to change because they're the ones who are controlling the system. So in that circumstance, that was one thing that was heartening to me as I was watching the protests was how many people were coming out saying, um, not just out in the streets, but I was getting contacted by people who I know who were white saying, what can I do to help? And I think that's that's the sea change that people were looking for. Um, going back to what I mentioned earlier about the minority group not being able to solve the issue, I think about the issue of I'm, I'm doing an assignment for class right now, and one of the things I'm looking at, at is uh, domestic violence and sexual assault rates in Alaska, and I think about how many women are victimized. I can't help but think about my daughters in that type of circumstance, and that even though I am in the – gender demographic that's not likely to be victimized by this type of activity, I I can't let that leave my mind to make sure I'm not just protecting everyone, but I'm also protecting my daughter. So I have to make that step. And as more and more people who are in the racial minority do that, then I think that we're in a good place. But if interest wanes, then that's the problem. That's where the realist in, in me kicks back in, where I want to believe with all my heart that Society is going to keep going on the right path and try to address this issue of uh, excessive police force. But at the same time, I also know we live in a society where just a few years ago, 26-year-olds were gunned down in in an elementary school, and there was no significant legislative change. Mm -hmm. And society allowed that to to drift from their public consciousness. I, I really hope it's different in this situation. But I, I need to see proof. Mm-hmm. What do you think makes the killing of George Floyd hit harder than the others? I think I think it, it, it boils down to – I was talking with my wife about this uh, the other day, too, because as she watched, I mean, she's tearing up. Um, I wish I could remember this, this person's name. Uh, actually, I do remember his name. He was a, a former professional basketball player. His name was John Amici. He played for the Orlando Magic, African-American man from Great Britain. Interesting story. He also uh, happened to be gay 
um, going through the NBA in the early 90s. He's a, he's a psychologist now in Great Britain. He was talking about this issue uh, right now. And one of the things that he talked about, about when he was asked this question, why was it so powerful this time? And he said it was because not just the video and the audio was what George Floyd was saying. As John Amici said, he said, George Floyd was basically narrating his own death. And that struck me because you could hear him saying, I can't breathe. You could hear him calling for his mother. You could hear all these things. And then you know the end result. And you see him not just narrating it. You see the offices around him indifferent to his suffering, indifferent to the pleas coming from the man who, uh, who may have been recording the video. And I think that's what's powerful is that you know what's about to, you know what's happening. And he's narrating his death. And he still, as my wife pointed out, he was still referring to the officer as sir as he's being killed. Those powerful things combined. I think when you have the other deaths, officer-related shootings, we don't have that. And that's one of the problems that we have is that obviously in, in a situation that results in someone's death, we don't get the story of the person who died. We don't hear their accounting of the events. But in this circumstance, we could hear George Floyd up until his death. And I think that's what made it so powerful. Mm -hmm. So how do you think Alaska fits into the national conversation about racism and police brutality? Like looking at where Alaska is politically and its political tendencies, um, obviously we are a more conservative state, but with a pretty strong libertarian streak. There are a decent number of Alaskans on both sides of the political spectrum who have a, a healthy dose of skepticism when it comes to government authority. But I also look at this state as sort of like I look at Illinois a little bit. Like being from Illinois, I'm from the Chicagoland area. Chicago, people who live in Chicago, in the city of Chicago and Chicago suburbs, that's different than the rest of Illinois. It's a completely different feel. And I look at that as well when I think about Anchorage and I think about many of the other communities in South Central Alaska. Um, it's a different feel out there in the valley. It's a different feel out there in the peninsula. And it's crazy that you can be in some place that's so culturally diverse that has some uh, more urban-centric uh, issues, and then you go to areas just, I mean, even if you just drive to Eagle River or Tupiac, that's a different feel and mindset and interpretation of things. So I think one thing that has to happen is there has to be sort of a merging of the cultures in Alaska, uh, merging of interests on this issue. For example, when they had the protest uh, up in Palmer, and I remember I was talking to someone. They're like, "Yeah, are you going to go out to the protest in Palmer?" And I said, "I'm," I said, "I'm not," and and I'm not saying that's the right answer. I'm just saying it's my answer. But my rationale behind that was that. In this circumstance, it's a different mindset out there. And I'm not afraid of the mindset that some individuals may have that may not be as pre prevalent here. But it's also, I believe, in essence, for me in this circumstance, that communities oftentimes may need to address their own issues. Where an outsider coming in, in my mindset, I may not necessarily be a solution. Now, I also could go the other way. You know, it's good to go out there and support the people who are having a cause there. But at the same time, that's also me parachuting in. It's me parachuting in and getting involved in the situation and then 
then lead in the situation. I think long-lasting change has to occur by the people in the community who will be there consistently. A stranger coming in, if, like, for example, a stranger coming in can help, but at the same time, if I don't know anybody in the community, if there is an issue or an argument, I'm not a neighbor. I'm not a friend. I'm not a classmate. I think it's more powerful coming from that aspect when you see the community coming together to address their issues. Mm-hmm. You know, Mike, I think that does it for my questions, unless you had anything else you'd like to add. Um, if I could add one thing, it would just be for everyone to kind of keep their eye on the ball. Now, we have a natural tendency, like I said earlier, to, to let the anger drift, but don't let the desire to be active in your community to try and seek solutions. Don't let that drift because it's going to feel horrible for people, for everyone, if well, – I don't even – unfortunately, I can't say if. When a situation like this happens again, if you realize that nothing changed or, or, or the energy dissipated and now you have to pick it up again, it's going to be hard to pick up steam again because people will say, no, we tried it, we lost interest, and we moved on. We can't move on in these type of circumstances. We can't do that if we want real change. Yeah, absolutely. And Mike, I mean, as always, thank you so much for your time, man. Um, it's always wonderful and enlightening to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. This episode included additional audio by Dustin H. James. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 